Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 50th... 50. I'm 50. ...episode <laughs> of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Oh, so good. Fancy and 50. We're fancy at 50. Okay, I'm done. That's... That's my bad Saturday Night Live. So in case you missed all that, that's the 50th episode yeah. of the Professional Book Professional Bookings Podcast. And this is Adam and Jill, who you probably know, I hope this isn't your first time listening, it's probably going to be your last if it is. I know, they're like... It's like every time, I, I see all these people that listen to our very first episode, people do that when they listen to podcasts and they go back, and every time I cringe, I'm like, no, don't just listen to that one, or we were I working know. on our sound and we're... our voice, quite literally. Yeah. Anywho. That's okay. How are you doing today, I'm Joe? good. How are you? I'm doing great. We're recording this on Read and E-Book Day. We are recording this on Read and E-Book Day. Um, and we in the office have a little fun, have people dress up in their like favorite literary stuff. And you and I are very on brand of our own. <laughs> I just realized that as I was walking. We are. Out. Yeah, so you can't see this, but if you, fo- if you follow us on Twitter, you're very aware that Jill is a Slytherin. Yes. Proud of it. Indeed. You have all your dripping in Slytherin. I do today. have all my dripping. I have my Slytherin tie mm-hmm. and my watch and my dark mark earrings. And I have a shirt with a um, Slytherin little like badge emblem thing. Like uh-huh. I, I'm like a Slytherin student today. Yeah, you look fantastic. Thank you. And I've got my Dr. Seuss cat in the hat t-shirt and I'm actually drinking coffee out of an of the places you'll go mug. Mug. So... Well, I love Harry Potter as well, obviously. My first love is Dr. Seuss. That's okay. I have an Oh, the Places You Go tattoo on me. So we are as on brand as each of us can be. Pretty much. We also had some fun gifting at each other yesterday about we did. how much you love Slytherin. Yeah. On Twitter. So um, obviously you won't be listening to this today because it doesn't come out till Monday. But uh, I hope you had a great reading ebook day if you celebrated with us. So anywho. I guess I should talk about the episode. You probably should. Yeah, okay. So this episode is an interview with author Kyler Overholt, who has, first off, just a really fun name. Indeed. Uh, her book is called A Deadly Affection, and it's all about these... It's set in the turn of the century in New York City, which she's a big fan of, and it's all about <clears throat> this murder case, but the main character is a psychologist who is worried that <clears throat> excuse me worried that her like helping out a patient may have led to them murdering someone else and so it's this big kind of like murder case but also trying to figure out what's happening in her life and she's also a female in the world of medicine at the turn of the century so dealing with a lot of that as well it sounds really good yeah and fun fact about kyler and you'll hear a little bit about this in the podcast she started off as a lawyer who was like taking creative writing classes in the evening i can't i, I can't love even, when that happened i know well not only that like i can't even imagine how many i mean we work a lot of hours here but they're fun hours right lawyers and i related to a few of them they always yep. seem very stressed out and Indeed. to spend a whole day doing litigation and then being like you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna also work on my writing skills and now she's a writer we, honestly we could probably do an entire podcast episode of just lawyers turned writers now that i think about it 
interesting enough, <laughs> you didn't know this, but our interview next week is with an author who did the exact same, same thing. Same. And they have the same publisher. It's both source books. Oh, so I was yeah. laughing. I was like, did you send me two authors who have the same Backstory. career path? They didn't. Awesome. It was just happenstance. But anyway, it was really interesting. And she's really... Um, she just it's fun to talk to people who you just you know are much much smarter than you yeah and so and she certainly is so Kyler was a lot of fun I think people will really enjoy this I also like that time period just I do like too. the turn of the century New York City um it kind of reminded me of like Gangs of New York yeah which is a little bit earlier than that but I actually asked her about a book that I've read called The Poisoner's Handbook and I said, I was like, this time frame reminded me of that. And she cut me off. She's like, yep, yeah, I read that book. I know exactly what you're talking about. So that was, <laughs> That's that was awesome. Fun. Yeah, it's just like, it's a cool time. I mean, it's a cool time to think back now that we have all the modern technology that we have. I don't know that I could make it. For sure. In that time. I know. Uh, how can people get a hold of us, Joe? They can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And see all of our give-offs. <laughs> yes, they can. You should really follow us on Twitter. We're, we're a lot of fun. Uh, Facebook and Twitter. And they can email us directly at feedback at overdrive.com. Yes. I wonder if people realize that our Twitter account is me because... It they might probably, not. Yeah, they might not. And it's probably a little weird for them, for people to see Twitter or see Overdrive on Twitter interacting with you all the time and probably like, wow, whoever that is really likes Jill. <laughs> it's me. It's Adam. I'm, I control that. Yeah, so. they may not realize that. That's why lots of times you'll see me interacting with Jill probably far more often than I should, but no one's yelled at me yet. So there you I'm go. Just gonna keep doing That's it. okay. I have my own Twitter account, but I still don't use that as often as interact sure. with you. Anyway, you can all you said they can email us at feedback at overdrive.com. You mentioned that. And if you go to overdrive.com and click the explore button, you can see all the titles that we mention every single episode. And just I don't think people realize this. If you're listening to this in iTunes or anywhere and you look at the description of the episodes, we put all the titles we talk about in there too, and every single one of those is linked. So if yes. you hear a title and you're interested, just pause the podcast real quick and scroll through the information and click on it. Well, it'll take you right to the overdrive.com page for that title and you can sample it and then borrow it through your library right from there. So And if the library doesn't own it, there is a possibility some of them will allow you to recommend titles to yeah. the library as well. So yeah. you can click on over to your library site and see if they'll allow you to recommend it as an option they should consider buying. Yes, that's a great reminder. But I, I had a few people this week ask us on Twitter like, Hey, where can I find all those titles you mentioned? Yeah, we... Like, do you scroll... Do you just scroll past our intros every week? Because we tell you. But yeah, if you just go to the, the all the information, you'll find them. Yeah. So, and even if your library doesn't have it and they don't have recommendations, two things. One, all the titles have samples, so you can start reading it. And two, if your library doesn't have the recommend to library function through Overdrive, just email them. That's Libraries true. are cool and listen to their users. Yeah. So, yeah. That's true, too. Anything else people should know about life in general <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so either all right well because we're recording this on reading ebook day i'm going to get back to retweeting people and putting gifts on twitter so i hope you all enjoyed this episode of the professional book nerds podcast Hi everyone, this is Adam from Team Overdrive, and today I'm joined by debut author Kyler Overholt, whose fascinating first novel, A Deadly Affection, won the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award and the Next Generation's Indie Book Award for Best Mystery. Kyler, thank you so much for taking some time and chatting with us today. 
Well, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Absolutely. So you became a published writer in a bit of a unique way. So before we kind of jump into A Deadly Affection, would you mind kind of going through your career path? Because it's a lot of people just decide they want to be a writer very early on, but that wasn't exactly how you started your career. No, that's true. It took me a while. Of course, I was always a writer at heart, and that I loved putting words together on a page, but I was never sure how I was supposed to make a living at it. And um, when I was a junior in college, I got a ride home with a guy who was a year ahead of me and heading off to law school the next fall. And I asked him, what exactly do lawyers do on a day-to-day basis anyway? (laughs) And he said, well, they write a lot of briefs and memoranda. And I thought, aha, they get to write and make money. That's what I'm going to do. And without much deeper analysis, I ended up going to the University of Virginia Law School, which I loved, by the way. And then I returned to my home state of Connecticut and took a job with a law firm where I found that I did indeed uh, enjoy the writing and research aspects of the job. But... um, other aspects I wasn't as keen on, and I could just never quite shake the feeling that I was only pretending to be a lawyer. And I think it had something to do with the stockings and pumps I had to wear. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been more of a jeans and sneakers kind of gal. Sure. Um, but in any event, after three or four years, I quit to start up a freelance writing business, which felt a little bit more like the real me and kept my brain from turning to mush while I had two young children at home. But something was still niggling away at me, and so one day I, I just decided to start writing a novel during my son's nap times. And I still remember walking up the stairs to my computer and typing chapter one. And it was very <laughs> frightening and, and exhilarating. And I, I just lost myself in the experience that followed, and from then on I knew what I wanted to do. So there's a couple of things in there that I want to I want to kind of maybe dive into just a little bit. One, I actually have a number of lawyers in my close circle of friends and actually in my family as well. And so I'm familiar with theirs, what they write on a day to day basis. It couldn't be more, you know, opposite (laughs) from. So you that's impressive that you have the ability to to go from you know, writing briefs and admittedly very dry legal documents and then go into um, you know, writing fiction. So was there, you kind of had the buffer in between of doing the freelancing, which I want to ask you about in a second, but was there, were you able to always keep those two things separate or did it kind of take some getting used to when you started writing, I suppose, for enjoyment as opposed to writing those briefs of kind of getting back into the flow of, I think you must access a different part of your brain or something. (laughs) I must say, I I never thought about writing fiction when I was younger. It was always uh, nonfiction, Mm -hmm. and I did enjoy that. I loved structuring the argument. I loved forcing cases to support the facts of our case and that sort of thing. And and that had its own intellectual appeal. But what I've had to learn to do, I guess what is a little difficult, is to trust what's going to come up from your own subconscious and to go with it. And that is an ongoing process for me. I think I started out being very outlined and really needing to know everything that was going to happen and perhaps being a little too inflexible in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I think I, with my second book, which I just handed into my editor, I think I have um, learned to just kind of have a little more fun with it, see what comes up and um, not be, you know, just just follow where it goes more. So yeah, it has definitely been a process. And so then when you went into freelance writing, if you don't mind me asking, what what type of writing were you doing from a freelance standpoint? Oh, it was for um, oh, environmental engineers and CAD designers, and you know, it was pretty dry also. Mm-hmm. I was writing for trade journals. 
I would interview guys in the in the various professions, and then I would crank out the articles for trade magazines. So, so yeah, it wasn't thrilling, but it did use the law background a little bit because I did need to use uh, need to understand how regulations work and so forth. But it was certainly nothing like writing fiction either. <laughs> but I bet I mean you could probably pull parts of it out of it having you know having some experience with freelance. I imagine you had to do a lot of research into the different articles you were writing, um, which probably helped, right? When you're you know, well, the research has been a constant through all of my endeavors because, yes, the mystery writing also, the historical mystery writing, requires right. a tremendous amount of research. So that is something I have a lot of practice with. And, yeah, that stays the same. And speaking of kind of the historical, you know, the, the fiction type of writing, how about you tell us a little bit about uh, your first novel, A Deadly Affection? Okay, well, A Deadly Affection is a historical mystery set in New York City in the year 1907 about a young female psychiatrist just starting out in her career and in the brand new field of psychotherapy who's afraid she may have unwittingly provoked a patient to commit a murder. So the police arrest the patient and are absolutely convinced that she's guilty, so it falls on Genevieve, the protagonist, to undertake her own investigation to try to prove to herself and to the authorities that the patient is innocent. And the book has a very twisty and turny plot with lots of surprises, so on one level, I guess, it's kind of a brain teaser. But it's also very much about Genevieve's struggle to overcome a burden of guilt that she's been carrying over a past family tragedy and to learn to trust herself again. So hopefully it connects on an emotional level as well. And so there's uh, there's a few things in there as well. One, I know from looking at your bio, um, her... Uh, the position that she holds is that's similar to what your husband does. Is that correct? Oh, <laughs> my husband is a psychologist. Yes, okay. we have evolved a little bit from there, but yes, he certainly is a a great um, reader to have, a first reader to make sure I'm not totally off the mark on this stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say. So was he as you were kind of going through? I imagine, like you just said, kind of being a first reader and, and bouncing some of your ideas back and forth. Uh, was he there to kind of confirm, like, yes, this is the way that things used to be? in this field, and did you use any of those resources, you know, as your well, husband? Well, it, it, you know, it's a little different because Genevieve is doing what she calls class treatment, which is really what we would call group therapy today, mm-hmm. and that's a little different. My husband certainly has experience with that, but it's not what he specializes in, and things were different. They wouldn't necessarily, things have changed since then. I mean, even Genevieve changes her approach over the course of the book because when it started out with this guy, Dr. Pratt, he did it for tuberculosis patients who he found were often depressed, mm-hmm. and he used this system where he tried, it was called thought depression, where he encouraged them to think more positively to overcome their depression and help them heal. But even he eventually gave up that thought suppression idea and in favor of just discussing group members' problems. And that eventually grew into what we know as group therapy, especially after World War One, with all the soldiers who were coming home shell-shocked and were desperately in need of help, there weren't enough therapists to help them all, so they had to see them in groups or in classes, and that's when it really took off. So it's kind of its own special thing because this whole thing about group member dynamics and so forth. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but my husband certainly gave me the okay, like nothing was outlandish, so that was helpful. <laughs> and then in addition to that, um, you have a lot of information on your website about kind of the dawn of the 20th century in New York City. So is that something that you've always found fascinating? And I guess maybe just for our listeners who might not be aware, what is it about that that time in that area that interests you so much? Well, I first became aware of that time through the stories of my grandmother, who I adored. And she was born in 1900 and lived for most of her 101 years in the city. 
and she loved to talk about her early childhood there. And I was just fascinated by her tales of being raised by nursemaids and nannies in this house that ran with clockwork efficiency, where children really were expected to be seen and not heard, Mm -hmm. and where girls especially were expected to do as they were told. And I think those stories helped me understand how much women of the time must have had to struggle to overcome their traditional roles. And then, so as I grew up, I, as I got older, I started, I was just drawn to that period and I started reading about it. And I discovered that it was a time when thousands of women went into the medical profession for the first time in history, something that I don't think most people are aware of. And it's really kind of a fascinating story that started with this brand new state-of-the-art medical school that Johns Hopkins University was trying to build back in 1893. And the country happened to go into a, a big depression that same year so that the university ran out of funds for the project, at which point uh, three women stepped forward and offered to give it $500,000 to complete it if and only if it would accept women students. Mm -hmm. And now prior to this, women were were totally excluded from mainstream medical schools, but seeing no alternative, John Hopkins agreed, and then other schools felt compelled to follow suit. And with the result that by 1900 or so, over 7,000 women had earned their medical degrees. So this, to me, once I found out about this golden decade of women in medicine, I, I knew I had to make my pro- protagonist one of those medical pioneers. And I have to say, uh, while I was kind of looking through all this information, um, th- this sort of reminded me of actually a nonfiction book that I've read. It's called The Poisoner's Handbook. Um, I've read that. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it literally, like, I was, it, there's a lot of parallels there where that's kind of like a similar area. It's a jazz age kind of story, but it's about chemistry and um, it's all about, I want to say, Charles Norris and Alexander Gettler, I believe, are the two their names. Um, but kind of, it's, right. it's the same area. They they were in New York City, and they're these two people who kind of set the standard for toxicology. Um, but it's that same area. It's, you know, New York City. Well, and, and actually, it's, it's that all about, most of the laboratories and so forth were, were established slightly after this time period. So it was even more Wild Westy when it came to... <laughs> Trying to just trying to figure out what happened in a crime. I think a lot of murders probably went undiscovered because you really couldn't detect poisons in the system that easily back then. Exactly. Yeah, and that and, was an evolving thing. Yeah, and I know that's kind of the opposite of um, you know of of the idea of your main protagonist, who obviously her her job is to try to help people. But it was just interesting where it's, it kind of struck a chord with me that I remember that as well. Um, so you, you mentioned obviously you know always being fascinated by this time frame and and hearing stories kind of growing up, um, and then obviously with your, your husband, with the, the aligning professions, what was some of the other uh, research and, and things that you did, or I guess how did you research as you were writing this story? Well, I like to use primary sources whenever possible, and that is one great advantage to setting a series in the early 1900s. There's still a lot of print material around from that period that's being digitized and made available online. Um, old newspaper articles are my favorite, but I also use old cookbooks and medical texts and photographs. Um, ex-police commissioners from that period seem to love to write their memoirs, <laughs> which are always filled with fantastic detail about police operations at the time, like you know how to use your baton on someone without seriously injuring him, or the early use of fingerprints and that sort of thing. And like anything, once you know a fair amount about it, it can be kind of exciting to discover new details. Uh, I remember once I needed to know, like for this book it was, I needed to know if the Sunday Blue Laws in 1907 would allow a brewery wagon to pick up empty saloon kegs on a Sunday. <laughs> so I'm researching this for hours, 
And I found a regulation that had just been passed on the subject like a few weeks before in late, late 1906. And it's not the sort of thing that most people would get excited about, but I was <laughs> shrieking with glee. So, so it's fun, although, of course, research can really be a huge time suck, too. It can really pull you away from, from your writing, so you have to try to balance the two. Oh, and I have to imagine that having your legal background probably helped a lot with that type of research, because there's a lot of people who may be writers that I, I know that they have patience, but that type, that particular type of research is probably tough to grind through if you don't have experience with it. Yeah, and I may go a little too far with it. I, I, I worry a little bit too much. It's, instead of, I'm always trying to remind myself, hey, it's fiction, it's fiction, <laughs> you know, it's okay. But I just, something in me wants to be as close to true as it can be to actual, so... Yeah, but yeah, I think that has helped for sure. Yeah, and so you mentioned writing this book kind of in between while while your child was was taking naps. So for your second novel, how about uh, we'll we'll start with that. When you when you do your writing, do you tend to keep a strict writing schedule, or is it just whenever you find the time? I guess maybe take us through your writing process now that you've sure. written a second manuscript. Yeah, well, fortunately, my sons are now grown, so <laughs> my day is my own to arrange. Uh, my problem is that I do everything best in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd love to be able to do everything then, but of course there aren't enough hours in the morning. So usually I get my exercise out of the way first, and then I will get to the keyboard by around 11 o'clock or so. And I'll work until about 2.30 and break for a late lunch, and then get back to my desk and finally knock off around 6.30 or so. But it's certainly not set in stone. Um, there's always errands and chores, you know, that need tending to. So it is a flexible schedule. Mm-hmm. But I do like to try to write every day when I'm working on the first draft because I find it can be difficult to get back into the flow if I stay away too long. And That's something I really try to stick with. And I, I don't have any kind of, I don't push myself to reach a certain number of words on a, each day or anything like that because mm-hmm. it just doesn't work for me. And do you have any um, kind of like, tricks or suggestions for writers one of the things that i always like to see uh i like to reference is um hemingway always mentioned kind of leaving literally leaving his writing for the day in the middle of a sentence so that when i've seen that and i think it's an excellent suggestion yes because that it can be daunting you come back upstairs it's a new day it's a new empty page and maybe you're not feeling all the energized over the story and you've sort of forgotten where you were with it and so if you can give yourself a visual reminder put put yourself right back in the sentence where you were without finishing it the night the day before that's a terrific idea Mm -hmm. and my only tip would be to not be too critical in in the first phases Um, you just have to throw it onto the page and it can really be awful and that's okay because there will be gems in there mixed in with the dross and you just you have to have faith in the process which is what I'm learning to do to just you know just keep Keep getting the words on the page. Get your seat in the chair, which is the hardest part, and then get the words on the page and then work with what comes out. I always like to tell people, if you can get past that blank first Word document, then you've done something right because it's just so daunting to see literally nothing but a cursor on the page. So. <laughs> just write anything, you know, write a laundry list, write, write whatever you want, but get something down. Exactly. Just the fingers so, sort of get warmed up and they just start going off on their own direction. Just, yeah, just so, not, yeah, just so you're not, just so you're not staring at that blank page at least. Yeah. Right. Um, so given that uh, Overdrive is a library company, I always love asking uh, authors who I speak with, do you have like a first or a favorite memory or something that you remember fondly about either working in libraries or growing up with a library, just just something you remember? Well, I clearly remember walking down the H aisle, holding my breath as I waited to see if there was another Georgette Higher Regency romance on the shelf that I hadn't <laughs> read yet, and being so thrilled when I when there was. 
you know, it was just, it was always so exciting because you weren't sure what would be, someone might have returned over the week. And I remember looking at that little, um, little checkout slip inside the book with a stamped due date mm-hmm. and thinking of all the other people who read that same book and kind of feeling a kinship with them because we'd inhabited that same pretend place for a little while. So, and of course, I also experienced the tragic side of book borrowing when I left my copy of The Moonstone out in the rain when I was like 12 years old. <laughs> And I had to fork over like several weeks allowance to pay for a new one. So that was a very good lesson on taking better care of my book. <laughs> so <laughs> other than those, do you remember or would you mind sharing some of the books that you read when you were growing up? Um, well, I, I read pretty voraciously. I, I do remember that I really loved um, Walter Farley's Black Stallion and Flame books about a boy and his horse. Gosh, I love those. Um, and then my mother used to bring me home armfuls of books from the library, her choice, um, which I would just, I would read, why not? Mm-hmm. And um, I actually came across a book report a little while ago that I wrote for her when I was 10 years old on Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Oh my goodness. Which says, which says something like, this was a pretty interesting book, but there were an awful lot of names. <laughs> so yeah, he's a big fan of names. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how much I actually got out of all these books, but I was always game to read whatever she brought home. I, that's so funny. I have to say two things. One, I am a big fan of Russian literature, but I'm horrible with names. Um, yeah. So like the Brothers Karamazov, I feel like I had to read the first few chapters of that like eight times oh, just over again. to yeah. try and get my head wrapped oh. around. And I have to say, I, I always ask authors that question about the books they read growing up. I've had a few authors say that they read Stephen King's It when they were way too young, but I haven't had anyone say that they've had Tolstoy that early, so you've got a first there. Good. Glad to be a first. Okay, so since you were reading Russian literature as a 10-year-old, what are some of the books and authors that you enjoy these days? Okay, well, um, of course, I read an awful lot within my genre, just trying to keep up with it, but Mm -hmm. um, outside of that, some recent favorites have been um, Helen Simonson, uh, Lindsay Fay, um, oh, Anne Leary, who's uh, actually a neighbor of mine here in Roxbury. I love her books. Um, Jennifer Niven, I don't know, familiar with, uh, she wrote, um, Velvet Jean Learns to Drive. What a fantastic book. Okay. I, for some reason, I wasn't familiar with that one. I thought it was terrific. Interesting. Um, and are you allowed to share a little bit about your second story? Is it going to be in the same world, or are those things you're not allowed to tell us just yet? Well, you know it's part of the series, right? That's what I, that was my, my going to be my question, is if the second book is part of the series or it not. It is, yeah. Okay. I, I had not intended to write a series, but um, I thought it would be a standalone. Mm-hmm. But readers seemed to assume it was going to be, or told me they hoped it would be, and when I thought about it, I liked the idea, because I liked the characters, I liked to spend time with them. And, of course, I'd already become familiar with the time period and done all that research, which I could then use in future books. Um, I did worry at first that I had already resolved Genevieve's biggest issue or, or driving motivation, which was her guilt over the death of her brother. But then I realized that, that kind of trauma would never really be completely resolved and could probably continue to subconsciously influence her in later books. So, um, yeah, I just handed in that manuscript for the, the second book, which is uh, due out next August. and. In that one, I, I had fun fleshing out Jenna's relationships with various secondary characters, both old ones and new ones, because I think one of the reasons people read series mysteries is just to hang out with the people in them. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to pay attention to that. Uh, it's, it's tentatively titled A Promise of Ruin, 
and it's about two topics that were very hot at the time. The white slave trade, which involved the forced prostitution of girls and women, mm-hmm. um, often young immigrants who were lured to the city with false offers of marriage or employment, uh, and the emergence of organized Italian crime in New York in the form of the Black Hand, which was a group of Italian extortionists that sent demand letters to prosperous Italians, often signed with a black hand or other sinister symbol, and then murdered them or bombed their places of business if they didn't pay up. So that's, that book will be out uh, next August, as I said. I, I think um, exactly what you said about staying with those characters, and um, it's similar to you know speaking with fantasy writers, when they've built a whole world, they kind of like to stay in there for more than one story. I think this is the same thing. You have a a world that maybe you didn't create, but it's it, there's so much interesting things to unpack when it comes to kind of the the dawn of the century in New York City. There's so many stories you can tell and, and weave in there that um, I think you're right. Readers get used to you know, they get to know certain characters, and you know if they're if they're interested in them, why not keep giving them <laughs> a few stories yeah, about those it. writers? They want it, I'll give it to them. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, I, it certainly can. I haven't. I've got plenty of ideas, so that's not an issue yet. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how long it'll continue. How many I'd be interested in writing, or how many want people want to read? But for now, it feels good. Yeah. So when you aren't uh, writing or reading, how do you like to spend your time? Well, I like to be outside a lot. I, I ride my bike, weather permitting, or I take long walks, and um, I do like to hang out with my two grown sons and to cook and travel with my girlfriends. Um, I also have a nightly yoga and meditation ritual that gets the kinks out after sitting in front of the computer all day and brings kind of a nice closure to the day. Nice. Um, all right, so at the end of our podcast, I like to ask nine questions that I call the Nerd Nine. These are kind of rapid fire. Um, don't need to do too much deep thinking into these. So um, are you ready to get a few rapid fire questions headed your way? I'm ready. Okay, what's the last book you read? Uh, the Summer Before the War by Helen Simonson. What's your favorite place to read? In bed. Perfect. In bed. Uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Like mine is I post way too many pictures of my two dogs on Instagram. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I'd have to say eating dinner in front of a movie on TV. I think that's supposed to be bad, right? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you can never get enough movies. Sure. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel that you haven't yet been to? Spain is actually next on my list. Thanks. Uh, favorite holiday? I think it might be turning into Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> speaking of movies, a uh, favorite movie? Well, the one I seem to watch most often is that is the Star Trek remake, the one with Chris Pine, uh-huh. the first one, uh, which mostly for the powerful opening sequence, which gets, it gets me crying every time within 10 minutes into the movie. <laughs> I just think it's fantastic. So, yeah, I'll say Star Trek. Sure. Uh, cats or dogs? Mm, both. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, favorite <laughs> favorite food? Um, tea. Does that count? Sure. I, somebody. Uh, we actually. We. I had this conversation with a few people in our office on a recent podcast, and I asked them what their favorite food was, and then I was. They answered, and I said, I don't know if I'd be able to answer it, as I was holding a giant coffee, and one of them was like, "Your favorite thing oh. is coffee. You are literally never without it." So, okay. I will. Oh, what, am, what am I holding the most often? It's yeah, be the tea. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if I if I get if I get away with coffee, I think I can let you get away with tea. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and then the last one is, if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? 
I'm going to say Eckhart Tolle. Ooh. I've always wanted to be a fly on his wall. That is a very good one. That's perfect. <laughs> um, one last question for you before I let you go. What do you hope readers take away from reading your books? Okay, well, I guess, you know, aside from probably the obvious, I, I think that what all authors are exploring and what all readers want to see is basically how people react when they're subjected to various stressors. And supposedly the reason that we're even attracted to stories, according to brain scientists, is because we really want to see how other people deal with various hardships so that we'll know what might or what might not work for us should we ever be thrown into a similar situation. So it's kind of like painless practice. So in that vein, I guess I would just like readers to add Genevieve's experiences to the millions of bits of other data they've collected over their lives so that it might in some tiny way help inform their feelings or decisions in the future. So you know, maybe it will remind them to have faith in themselves at some critical time or encourage them to stop beating themselves up for something that happened in the past. That would be very cool. That is a perfect place to end and a fantastic answer. Kyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Adam. I've had a ball. <laughs> Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.